Well, good morning, church family, and a blessed Resurrection Day to all of you, and perhaps even to, to some visitors that have joined us online as well. This is certainly a unique experience for us as a church family, and a unique experience for me as a pastor as well. We're actually preaching on yesterday, and bringing to you today, and I'm preaching to largely an empty church. So this is unique to us, a different experience, and these are strange times for our community as well as for us as believers. And one of the things that we strongly encourage in our walk of faith is to gather together and to be faithful in joining in fellowship one with another, even on Sunday and during the week in small groups and those kinds of things, and we're just not able to do that at this time. So this has caused us to be more creative with our ministries and with our fellowship, and we trust that this will be just for a short period of time, but the modern conveniences of our electronic age have allowed us to be connected in these other ways. But the day will come, Lord willing, when we're able to gather again, and we do not want modern technology to be used in such a way that it keeps us apart when we are able to be together once again. So while we will temporarily use our TVs and our phones and our computer screens to stay connected for these next few weeks, we do encourage you not to allow yourselves to become too comfortable or too accustomed to doing church from your couches or your recliner chairs because there can be no substitute for the Christian fellowship that comes from assembling ourselves together as Hebrews 10 instructs us to do. Now what our world calls Easter Sunday is to the church of Jesus Christ, Resurrection Day. In truth, Easter Sunday is really no different than any other Lord's Day celebration for the church of Jesus Christ. And we do so because we understand that the chief problem with humanity is not wars or natural disasters. It's not global warming or even viral pandemics. It's not dictators or social injustices. The chief problem with humanity is that of sin, what is so often referred to as human depravity. Since the fall of creation in the garden, men and women have been born into spiritual death and brokenness and every human being down through the history of humanity has been held in bondage to this sinful condition with the exception of God's Son. And it's His coming into our world that provides the only hope of salvation for mankind. And therefore, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is why Christians gather every Sunday for corporate worship at least when there's not a pandemic upon us. And we often refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day because it was on the first day of the week that our Savior walked out of the grave and with that, He brought to us victory over sin, death, and eternal judgment. And once a year, we may give special recognition to that victorious day. But really, every Sunday is our worship of Resurrection Sunday recognizing we were delivered as believers from this greatest condemnation, our sinful condition. Because we've not been able to gather together as we would normally do on Passion Week, I've chosen a passage of Scripture this morning that I want to bring you to 
out of the book of Romans in chapter 6 because it is a passage that deals not only with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it deals also with His death and His burial. And among the many great resurrection chapters of God's Word, like the Gospel accounts, or like 1 Corinthians 15, in my view, Romans 6 is one of the great resurrection chapters from the Word of God. So please join me in Romans chapter 6, taking your Bibles, and you can follow along with me there at home as I read, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 14. Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer walk as slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Pre present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I ask you to join me in prayer before we begin our worship and study. Our Father God, we do thank you for your Son, His willingness to come to our earth and represent us in humanity, to take a position of suffering on a cross and bear our sins there, enduring your wrath and your judgment on our behalf. We are grateful for the Son's power over the grave, that three days later He walked out and is a risen living Savior to Your people, that He represents us now in Your presence, on Your throne, caring for His church and interceding on our behalf. As we give time and thought this morning to that resurrected living Savior, I pray that You would speak to every believer that is listening to these words now, that You might minister to our hearts as people of Your own, people that have been purchased by the blood of Your Son, covered by the Lamb of God. And we praise You for that. We pray also for those that may be listening that may not yet have confidence in their salvation, that may not yet have faith. We pray that as a God that cares for the heart, that has power over the grave, over sin, over judgment, 
and even over ourselves, that You would continue to minister to those people that need to hear Your Gospel and lead them by faith into the presence of Christ. In the time that we have together around Your Word, would You be our teacher and guide? Fill our hearts with the glory of the resurrection that we see presented here in these pages before us. And I pray this in Christ's name and for His church. Amen. From Romans chapter 6, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, is a critical doctrine to the Gospel believer. And it is critical not only for our eternal destiny, but also for our present walk of faith. And you can see that the Apostle Paul is passionate that the church knows this significance, the truth of the resurrection. Here is the central point to this part of the letter to the church in Rome. And I want you to observe that three times Paul uses that word know or knowing. And then in verse 11, consider. He's engaging the Christian mind to consider Christ on the cross and the empty tomb, and what it means to our lives as believers. He's establishing the theology and practical nature of the believer's sanctification. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, he apparently had not been yet to Rome. But he seems confident in these words that these Roman believers understood or knew certain aspects of their relationship to the resurrected Christ, and yet it seems that these Roman Christians were struggling with the application of this knowledge. And therefore, Paul writes to teach the church what it must know about living as those who have been made alive to God by the living Savior and in the living Savior. And therefore, we want to do more than just know about the circumstances of the resurrection of Christ. We must know what His resurrection has accomplished and how we are to respond to that knowledge. Now, backing up to chapter 5, Paul wrote of the justification of sinners that Jesus Christ earned for believers. And he makes the point that through one man, Adam, sin entered into humanity. But then we read that God demonstrated His love for sinners when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. By His blood, atonement was made for sin. By His death on the cross, He made full payment for sin. And in this way, the one act of Christ's righteousness on behalf of sinners resulted in the justification of those who believe. And then Paul concludes his thoughts in chapter 5 on justification, but writing, by writing that where sin increased and was exposed by the law of God, the grace of God was magnified. And this assures us that our justification is not earned by our good behavior since we have nothing good to offer God. Rather, it is the righteous act of His Son that grants to the sinner the gracious act of justification as a gift. And what this describes in justification from chapter 5 is a transaction between the Father and Son that any of us should stand as justified before God. There is Christ's righteousness and a sacrifice. There is God's grace and this gift of justification. And we are the ones that receive that gift by faith. 
So chapter 5 presents us with the transaction between father and son in giving justification to those who believe. But as one notable pastor put it, salvation not only is a transaction, but it is a transformation. In other words, it's not only a forensic declaration, but it is an actual experience. And therefore, Paul moves into chapter 6 to write of that transformation. Chapter 5, transaction. Chapter 6, the transformation that is described, as it says in chapter 6 and verse 22, as the sanctification of the believer. Paul shows that the resurrection of Jesus Christ causes the believer to be sanctified. And what he will show in the passage that we're going to study this morning is that where there is justification, there must of necessity also be sanctification. Sanctification being how we are dealing with sin and how the believer is growing in righteousness. Now there are three sanctifying transformations that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has earned for the believer as is presented here in the sixth chapter of Romans. And if you happen to have downloaded the note sheet, you will observe that we're putting this in the context of those who have believed in the risen Savior, those who have believed in the resurrection. And my hope this morning, as we worship the risen Christ together, is that we as believers understand, we know And we apply what the empty tomb has accomplished for us through faith in the Christ of God by His grace. Therefore, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers in the resurrected Christ, number one, walk in newness of life as you read down there in verse 4. In the first five verses of this text, we see that Jesus Christ is the one that gives to us newness of life based on His resurrection. And the chapter opens in verse 1 by asking a question that exposes a potential problem for believers and one that the church in Rome was apparently struggling with. Because the believer's justification before God was entirely an act of divine grace, And this grace is made more evident and more glorious in light of man's sinful condition. The assumption was made that to continue in sin gave more opportunity for grace to increase. And it's almost as if man is saying, we're going to help out God by continuing to sin. Christians were embracing the justification earned for them by Jesus Christ, but they were living carelessly in disregard of their sanctification. As Paul presents it in verse 12, letting sin reign in their mortal bodies and in obedience to the lusts of their own flesh. It's the knowledge of the resurrection that Paul brings back to the church so that they would understand what the empty tomb means to the believer's walk of faith. We have been justified by God's grace through faith in the living Savior. What shall we say then? How are we to continue to live as a people that have received this abundant grace? Is it okay to live in sin knowing that the cross covers every bit of it? Because the cross does cover every bit of our sin. Paul says we must never think that way. 
We must never live that way. Verse 2. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too would walk in newness of life. There in verse 4, we are given a cause for Christ's crucifixion and His resurrection. It had a purpose to it. He went to Calvary to make payment for our sins by His blood and by His death making atonement for those sins. He was buried in a tomb and He had remained in the grave had He been left in the grave. Had He not risen from the dead, the salvation that He had offered would be without power and without effect. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 16, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. So we can see at once the power of the resurrection is essential to the believer. If Christ had not been risen from the dead, if He had not walked out of the tomb, our faith would be worthless. We would still be in our sins. We observe from Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, the resurrection of Jesus Christ then does more than simply remove the condemnation of sin for those who believe. It causes the believer to walk in newness of life as well. The believer in Christ does not face eternal judgment any longer on account of this grace. But notice with me, grace has radically changed the present life of believers. They walk in newness of life. Now consider with me what this means from these first five verses. You see in verse 3 and 4 that we have as believers been immersed into Christ. And Paul gives us this imagery by using the sacrament of baptism. We have been baptized into Christ, he writes. And this is in reference to every true believer. It is a way of saying that we as believers have been immersed into Christ by faith. We've been made one with Christ. We are joined to Him. And now we identify with Jesus Christ. And we observe from the language of baptism here that this is a much deeper identification than merely wearing the Christian label. Merely saying, oh yes, I am Christian, or I attend a Christian church, or I'm a member of a church, or I'm a very religious person. To say that we have been baptized into Christ takes our identification much deeper. In verses 3, 4, and 5, the believer is identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the picture of the sacrament of baptism is a profound way to express the believer's union with Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus and in obedience to Him, as Matthew 28 tells us, we are baptized as believers in water. And this communicates the idea that God's Son took upon Himself our sins and died to make payment for those sins. He was buried into the grave. And three days later, He rose out of the grave. The sacrament of baptism illustrates that wonderfully. And as believers, we identify in faith with His death, with His burial, and with His resurrection as we are immersed in water and we are brought up out of that water once again. So Paul uses the idea or the view of baptism to communicate the extent of our union with Christ 
as we are immersed in the water of baptism, so we are also immersed in Jesus Christ. And the Greek word that Paul uses for baptism, baptizo, does not just emphasize a sacred act, but it emphasizes a significant change. You can picture yourself there coming down into the water dry, but you're submerged into the water, you're brought back up and you are changed. You're now made fully wet. This word was used to describe back in the day of Christ the cloth that would be put into a vat of dye. It would be fully submerged. It would be taken after, out after a period of time, hung up to dry, and it would be completely changed. It would take on a whole new color. The New Testament Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest defines baptism this way, and you will find it on your note sheet. He writes, it is, baptism, baptizo, is the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. This is what Paul is writing of the believer here in chapter 6. We have been baptized into Christ. We have been immersed into Him. And the point that Paul makes is those who believe Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father have been fully immersed into Christ. We have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit and we now take on the likeness of Christ. We're in union with Him so that we too will walk in newness of life. Galatians 3.27 puts it this way, For all of you, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. We take on a new likeness. The old person is laid to rest and we come up by faith immersed in Christ. So the power of the empty tomb for the believer is that we have been changed. There's been a radical transformation worked upon us by God the moment that we came to faith in His Son. Frequently, Scripture refers to this change as the believer's sanctification. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God in His holiness, in His righteousness. Now, number one, we are positionally set apart in Christ or sanctified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But there is also the sanctification in Scripture where progressively we take on more and more the likeness of the Savior. We're growing in His image, living by His Word. And this transformation has character to it. Which leads us into verse 2. Where it says, we have died to sin. To be baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ, means we have died to sin. Now Paul's going to expand on this truth in the verses to follow, but the reference to death to sin is a spiritual death, and this takes place the moment we have spiritual rebirth or regeneration. And at this point, we must know that when we die to sin, it is a permanent and final condition. It is not something we have done, but this is a work done on us by God Himself. Now, later in this chapter, there is a sense in which Paul will show the church that believers are not to sin. But the reason that Paul gives for this 
is that now we are in Christ dead to sin and therefore we ought not to sin. We've been immersed in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. So Paul uses the expression died to sin to apply to the believer in verse 2. But notice verse 10. Paul also applies this to Christ Himself. He, Jesus Christ, died to sin once for all. And the meaning behind verse 10 is that Jesus walked and lived in a sinful world. He lived among sinful people while He was here on earth. He ministered to sinners. He called sinners to repentance. He dealt with the effects of sin as He healed the sick. We read that Jesus was tempted by sin in all points as we are, and yet He did not sin. He then went to the cross where our sins were placed on Him. And He received the judgment or the wrath of God for those sins. And He did so on our behalf. He then died to that sin, verse 10, once for all. He would never repeat that death, nor would He ever have to. So it is, backing up to verse 2, with every believer who has been immersed into Christ even baptized into His death. Through faith and by God's grace, we have died to sin. In other words, the old man of sin has been laid to rest, never to rise again. What is raised to life is the new man in Christ, who as it says in verse 4, is now going to walk in newness of life. The argument that Paul would make because of this death to sin is that we're not to pick up the old clothes of the dead man, and try him on once again. We're not to continue in sin because we have died to sin. I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones made in regard to a comment he made on this text. He wrote, Do not go on living as if you were still that old man because that old man has died. Do not go on living as if he was still there. This is what Paul is communicating in this passage. In this way, we bear the likeness of the death of Christ. He died to sin once for all. And by faith in Him, we also died to sin. And there can be no going back to that former state. This is part of what it means to walk in newness of life. We do not walk as spiritually dead men and women any longer. There's a third part to this that builds on our understanding of being immersed or baptized into Christ from verse 5, and that is that we have also been raised up with Christ. We not only are dead to sin and laid to rest in that sense, but as we were immersed in water in baptism and we were brought up out of that water, so Paul says we have been raised up with Christ. And again, you can see the imagery of baptism and what it communicates about our walk of faith with Jesus Christ. Verse 5 builds on this. For if we have become united with Him, with Jesus, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is now the second reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we observe that again it is applied to the believer. The meaning here is that believers have been raised up with Christ to newness of life. 
And this is similar to what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. He wrote these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The moment we come to faith in Christ, we are found in Christ, and spiritually we died to sin. But we've also been made spiritually alive in Christ. The old self, Paul says in verse 6, was crucified with Christ. And this is where we die to sin. Yet Christ did not remain in the grave, but was raised from the dead. So too the believer is resurrected in the likeness of Christ. Our taking on the likeness of His resurrection is a reference to our spiritual resurrection, just as our likeness to His death was our spiritual death to sin. And John 3 refers to this as being born again, or what we would often say is our regeneration. We've been made alive in Christ Jesus. It reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2, where sinners are described as those dead in their trespasses and sin. That is where God's grace finds us. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This resurrection is not speaking about our future bodily resurrection, as wonderful as that event will be. This is describing the newness of life that we are granted as part of our new identity in Christ. In bringing up our union with Christ this way, Paul is establishing the grounds for our purposeful, intentional sanctification. In other words, we should do away with sinful living because we have died to sin and we've been raised with Christ. Living in sin is no longer part of who we are. Now, we may choose to sin on occasion, but it is not consistent with our new condition, our new state as resurrected ones. So Jesus Christ was raised from the dead that we might walk in newness of life. Again, highlighting the magnificent transformation of sanctification for those that believe in the resurrected Savior. And this brings us to verse 5 through verse 9, where we see there is a second mention, or a third mention, I should say, of the resurrection of believers in connection with being set free from the bondage of sin. So this brings us to another work of grace brought to the believer through the resurrection of Christ. And we pick up again in verse 5 where Paul teaches that being raised in the likeness of the resurrection of Christ sets in motion the work of doing away with the body of sin because we are no longer slaves to sin. Christ died to set us free. And if we have died with Christ, as it says there in verse 8, we shall also live with Christ. And then verse 9 adds a doctrinal point that every believer must know in regard to their sanctification. Paul writes, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over Him. 
Notice once again what we are to know about Christ who has been raised from the dead. It is critical to our sanctification in the faith and our living the newness of life that belongs to those who are raised with Christ. James Boyce wrote these words, The secret of sanctification is not some neat set of experiences or emotions, however meaningful or intense they may be. It is rather knowing what has happened to you. Paul is emphasizing strongly the knowledge of the resurrection, the knowledge of the cross and the empty tomb, and knowing exactly what we are in Christ. Boyce is referring to what Paul has written here in chapter 6, that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who believe have died to sin and have been raised up in newness of life with Christ. Paul then nails down the doctrine of our spiritual resurrection by showing us what we are to know about Jesus Christ and what His resurrection has done for us as believers. When Christ was raised from the dead, death no longer was master over Him. Jesus surrendered to death one time. And He did so to make full payment for sin. He did so for our sake. He succumbed to death. He submitted to death, bearing our sins, making atonement for those sins by His death. And in three days, He was raised in power and glory, never to submit to the demands of sin and death ever again. When we come to faith in Christ, trusting in the atoning work that He accomplished by His death, His resurrection, our old sinful self was crucified with Him. Verse 6. The old man of sin has died, setting us free from sin. And we are not only set free from the condemnation of sin, but we are forever delivered from the bondage or the slavery that sin held us in. This means sin no longer has a hold on us. Formerly, we could do nothing but sin, and we were powerless to live free from it. The empty tomb has changed that for those who are justified by faith. But notice that Paul speaks of, in verse 6, the body of sin. This body of sin speaks to the reality that we are still inclined to sin so long as we are in this present body of flesh. The fact that we have died to sin sets us free from the bondage that held us where we once committed those sins. And as we are raised up with Christ to walk in newness of life, the old way of death is no longer our master, even as Jesus no longer lives under the master of death. But we still must contend with the inclination to pursue the desires of our fleshly nature. So verse 12 puts it this way, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. The body of sin is still present as long as we are in this body of flesh. Paul recognizes the desire for sin is still present so long as we live in this earthly realm. But the power of our resurrection in Christ is that we are no longer slave to sin. We've been set free from its bondage so that we always have a way of escape, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. With the temptation always comes with a way of escape. And we now are free to take that way. 
R.C. Sproul made an interesting comment in his commentary on Romans chapter 6. And I want you to think about this as you consider the words of Paul here. Sproul writes, I think it is hypothetically possible that we can live the rest of our days without sin. But it's virtually certain that we will continue to struggle with sin. Imagine what Paul is telling the church then and today. For he who has died with Christ is freed from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. The power of Christ, the power of the resurrected Christ to walk out of the grave is now given to the believer so that we can walk away from sin. We have the ability, we have the spiritual power to say no to sin. Nonetheless, the reality is that Paul was writing these words to the church in Rome because the believers in that church were allowing sin to reign in their lives, living in obedience to the lust of their flesh. Christians will struggle with sin. But the knowledge that we have died and been risen with Christ gives us unlimited power to overcome sin such that we do not have to obey its enticements any longer. That's the transforming power of the resurrection of Christ to those who have been justified by faith. It's sanctifying power. In Christ, we can deny sin. In Christ, we can progress in our sanctification because the power of the empty tomb now belongs to the Spirit-resurrected believer. And it brings us to the last two verses that I want to talk about this morning. Verse 10 and 11. Resurrection believers are made alive to God. And this is where I believe that Paul is bringing this text to kind of a summary statement here in Romans chapter 6. And I want us to consider for our time of worship this morning, and I use the word consider because this is what Paul does in verse 11. He challenges us to consider. Paul brings this doctrinal presentation to a key point here. He has thoroughly presented the resurrection. And now he's saying, let's talk then about our sanctification. Verse 10, For the death that He died, Christ died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul summarizes here in verse 10 what he has just taught in the previous passage. But then he brings it to a conclusion. Christ died to sin once for all, and that once was enough. His death made full atonement for the sins of His people. But hidden within these words, speaking about the death of Christ, is His willingness to become defiled with our sin in that moment on the cross. And this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. He, God, made Him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is why on the cross, Jesus cried during the dark darkness of that final hour, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned His face of favor away from His Son because His Son had become defiled with our sin. 
then God turned His just wrath against Jesus. And He, Jesus, accepted the punishment that we deserved. Jesus then died to make payment for our sin that one time, but never again. And when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, He was made alive to God and forever lives to God for the purposes of God, for the pleasure of God. When Jesus stepped out of the realm of His heavenly glory, He lived and had fellowship with a sinful, fallen humanity. And yet He lived among us without sin. He took our sin upon Himself. He atoned for that sin. And so effective was His atonement that it will never need to be repeated. And He rose again in power through the glory of the Father, it says in verse 4. Jesus then returned to the realm of God's glory where He lives to God. This is what verse 10 and 11 is teaching us. He lives in the presence of God. He lives for the purpose of God. Then Paul calls the church. Consider what this means for us. And this word consider in the Greek is where we get the word logic. It means to calculate, reason this out. This is a turning point for the book of Romans. Because up until this point, all the way from chapter 1 to this midpoint in chapter 6, has all been exposition and doctrine until we get to verse 11 of chapter 6. Now an exhortation is given. With all of the doctrine of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, now verse 11, now church, Consider. Reason this out. What does this mean for you as a believer? What does this mean for our sanctification? How do we look at sin and growing in our sanctification and our relationship with the living God? In our closing moments, we want to do just exactly what Paul has instructed us to do. We want to consider what it means to be dead to our sins but now alive to God. Because that's what the cross of Jesus Christ has done for us as believers. It has made us alive to God in Christ Jesus, reminding us that we've been immersed in Christ, baptized into Christ, which has made us alive to God. So I've given us five considerations this morning that I want us to ponder, to meditate on. What does it mean to the believer that we are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. And bear in mind, there are far more than five. This is just a sampling. Some examples of what it means for the believer to be alive to God. Speaking of our sanctification as this amazing transformation that comes right out of the empty tomb of Christ. I begin with kingdom inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, 5, and 6, which we read earlier, we read that having been made alive by God's mercy, we have been granted as believers a position of royalty. We once were dead in our trespasses and sin. Now we are seated with the Son of God. We have a position of royalty. It's a place of inheritance. In Ephesians 1, Paul speaks of this in verse 11, 13, and, or 11 12, 13, and 14, reminding us, because of our salvation, we have a rich inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. To be alive to God in Christ Jesus means that God has bestowed on us the riches 
of belonging to His eternal kingdom of glory. In addition, being alive to God, according to Hebrews 6, verse 19 and 20, reminds the believer that the death and resurrection of Christ has removed the veil of separation between the holy realm of God and the believer. It speaks about divine fellowship. We've entered into the presence of God Himself because of the empty tomb. Remember when Christ died, it was the veil in the temple that was torn apart. It's an image given to us of the body of Christ which was torn and bleeding. And because of His sacrifice, we can enter in through Christ into the presence of God. This reminds us that to be alive to God in Christ Jesus means that believers have fellowship with God. Where at once we were at enmity with God, as it says in Ephesians 2. Now we are at peace with God. Friends of God. In Hebrews 2, we are the brother of His Son. Divine fellowship has been established. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, God's Word teaches us also that in Christ, we experience a loving state of reconciliation. Because God demonstrated His love in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 tells us now there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been delivered from the bondage of sin. And that was a demonstration of God's love for sinners. And now we live in the loving embrace as Romans 8 teaches us. The loving embrace of our Heavenly Father as those who have been adopted into His family as children. And Paul goes on to write in Romans 8, because of this deep love that God has for His adopted children, who called us, who glorifies us, who then can separate us from this divine love. So loving reconciliation is part of what it means to enter into this transforming sanctifying work where we're set apart for God. We are alive to God. Further, as Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17 and verse 3, these words were spoken in prayer to the Father. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know You, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ whom You have sent. To come under the knowledge of Jesus Christ by faith in His death, burial, and resurrection, is to know the only true God who sent Him. To be alive to God in Christ Jesus is to have eternal life. And you will see that also in Romans 6 and verse 22. But I want to finish on this fifth point because it has much to do with our sanctification as Paul is writing about in Romans 6. Again, in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, we read that the ones that God called to his for, by His foreknowledge, it says He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, to be alive to God means that we are image bearers of Christ. And this gets to the very heart of our spiritual sanctification and the power of the cross and the empty tomb. In the beginning, our Creator made us in the image of God. And we know that sin corrupted or perverted that image 
And it has ever since in humanity. And this brings us back to man's greatest problem, that of sin. It is the power of the cross and the empty tomb that delivers us from this sin. By faith in Christ, we have been recreated by God to once again bear the image of our Creator who is Jesus Christ. To be alive to God in Christ is to reflect His image to the world around us, to the church. What better incentive do we have to not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies? And this again is a profound change that we experience in sanctification as we embrace the crucified, the resurrected Christ. The resurrection of Christ has made us alive to God. Now, in bringing these thoughts to a close this morning, this passage was written to confront the problem of Christians who are still struggling to overcome sin. And I fear that all of us are in that struggle. We do not want to make the mistake of thinking that because we are justified by God's grace, that we can be careless with sin or our sanctification. Paul finds the motivation for the believer's sanctification to be in the resurrection of Christ because it is the knowledge of the empty tomb that empowers the believer to overcome sin. At the bottom of the second page of your note sheet, I've added a statement by John MacArthur who wrote these words, until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, he cannot live victoriously. Because in his innermost being, he does not think it is possible. Probably every believer has struggled with this at one time or another. Because too many times we find ourselves repeating the same sins over and over again, and we think we're never going to be free of it. Romans 6 teaches us that it is possible and that power is found in the resurrection of Christ. How often do we think of the empty tomb in connection with this kind of sanctifying power? I just want to give you three summary points as we bring this to a close. Number one, grace does not give us the freedom to sin. It empowers us to live in bondage to God's righteousness. Our Christian culture today, unfortunately, is giving us a very different message. And it is a message that all too often we may embrace all too readily. The grace found in the cross and the empty tomb are meant to be an incentive to holy living, not cause us to treat sin and our sanctification lightly. Look at Romans 6. Look at verse 22. Paul brings that chapter to this summary point. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in what? Sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. It's the empty tomb that empowers the true believer to address his sin and his sanctification, which is leading us to the glory of living in the kingdom of God. We need to see grace in that context. Number two, every believer will struggle against the inclination to sin. And we're going to do so from the, for the rest of our lives here on earth. Now, while we are no longer slaves to sin, 
we will have to battle sometimes the same sins over and over again. Resisting and struggling against sin are evidences that we have died to sin and we've been raised with Christ. When we struggle, when we protest, when we resist sin, it shows that we are contending with that which we are no longer enslaved to. And we don't want part of it in our lives. If there is habitual sin and there is no struggle, there is no resisting, then likely you are not saved at all. So the fact that Christians continue to fight and war against sin is evidence that we have died to sin and we've been raised to Christ and we don't want to put on the clothes of the old man of sin any longer. So we need to keep fighting. We need to keep resisting. We need to wake every morning and say, today is a new battle. I've had a rest with this night of sleep. Now I awake and I face those things again. And three, finally, if all that Romans 6 is telling us is true regarding our sanctification by the knowledge of the resurrection, and we know that it is true, then it is essential that we do what it says and consider that we evaluate what it means to be immersed into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It appears to me that the more we know of God's Son and His atonement, the more we will live as those who are raised up with Him and in Him. I would say then it's going to be helpful for each of us this week to continue on in our study of Romans 6 this week. Reasoning, considering what the empty tomb has accomplished in regard to our sanctification. Let's close our time in prayer. Father God, we do thank You for the living Word, Jesus Christ, and all He accomplished in declaring Your glory as He went to the cross to represent us there He was also representing your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your justice, your holiness and righteousness. And when Jesus surrendered his life, making full payment for our sins, he did so with his love and his admiration of you, Father, but also his love for his church. In three days, he walked out of that grave, declaring he and he alone has the power over sin, over death, and eternal damnation. And what is given to us here is a precious gift of grace. That as we turn by faith and we trust in that risen living Savior, we can be justified in your presence. And we have this marvelous transformation of your sanctifying work on our lives. So as a people of God, we give praise to you for loving sinners and providing so rich redemption in your Son who is the Passover Lamb that lives today. And we praise you for Him in Christ's name.